This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. This week, get on the bus. The whole 2012 gang made their way to Iowa and got down to some old-school retail politics. Palenti's out, Perry's in, and President Obama's new ride, made in Canada, paid for by the Secret Service, and it's polyoptically challenged. We'll speak to Time Magazine's senior political editor Mark Halpern about this week on the trail and the string he's collecting for Game Change 2. And then from the producer of Smokey and the Bandit, and the director of Clinton Gore Bus Tour Number 1, campaign stagecraft legend Mort Engelberg joins the conversation. But first, I'm joined by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role I played in the George W. Bush White House. Joshua, my friend, it is great to have you here. Great to be with you, Adam. It was very hard uh, this week to watch from New York the goings-on in Iowa, and then the president's bus tour from Wisconsin down to Illinois. These, this is the kind of thing that I live for. I mean, I, I the, to watch everyone uh, making their appearances at the Iowa State Fo- State Fair, drinking their, eating their deep fried uh, butter on a stick, uh, then a terrific debate, uh, and then you know an emergence of Michelle Bachman to win the Ames Straw Poll, uh, the first. Republican woman ever to win that, uh, and then to be totally eclipsed by by the hurricane that was Rick Perry as he entered into the race. Boy, you'd really want to be outside of Washington and New York and, and out in the field watching this all take place. Yeah, I felt particularly cynical this week. Uh, Hurricane Perry caught my attention uh, to the to the extent that he inserted himself so deftly into the national news cycle with his criticism of the Fed chairman and uh, then the rejoinder from the President of the United States while he's out campaigning, although don't call it a campaign trip, it was really a White House uh, affair because the taxpayers paid for it. We'll get to that later. But what, what really struck me from inside the Beltway, Josh, is that while Michelle Bachman won the Ames straw poll by a whisker over Ron Paul, he's like c- completely not mentioned anywhere. And, and it makes me wonder... Is there this idea that the narrative has already been written and despite the results and the excitement that exists, at least in this formative stage in the campaign, Josh, that people like Ron Paul, who just don't fit the the narrative, are, are almost excised as if they were never there? Well, let's remember that the Ames straw poll is not a politically binding event. What had to happen was that... Uh, Candidates needed to muster Iowans to drive either near or far all the way to the ta- the city of Ames. Either the the Iowan or the campaign on their behalf needed to pay a chunk of money, about forty dollars, to get a ticket to vote in the Ames straw poll. So this was a test of a very small, infinite minority of. Republican voters to see how well they could organize basically the transportation and logistics and care and feeding uh, and cooling off of of activist voters so they could cast a ballot uh, in the Hilton Arena in in Ames, Iowa. It is it is not a referendum of 
how credible a, a potential candidate or president of the United States any of the entrants are. So even though Michelle Bachman, who we've praised on this show for her very impressive stage presence, or Ron Paul, who we haven't spent any time on, did incredibly well in the straw poll, it doesn't say that uh, they're going to be taken seriously on a national level. Okay, and I, I grant you all of that, but I do want to point out that it was sufficiently important to put an end unceremoniously to the uh, presidential aspirations of the former governor of Minnesota, Tim Pawlenty, who stepped aside this week. And I do take some exception with this gang of uh, journalists who are following all this who seem to have a narrative that they're sticking to that was somehow written before the events took place. And it might, Adam, rewrite the books next time. If you if you say, for instance, that President Obama will be reelected, that means that the 2012 race will be wide open on both sides. Does it mean that uh, a Republican candidate like Tim Pawlenty, who had a very successful career as governor of Minnesota, uh, needs to stay out of the race longer so that he can have his entrant, entrance after the Ames straw poll like Governor Perry did because certainly there was no upside and there has been no upside for either him or uh, Governor Huntsman from Utah to be in it so far and not to have this uh, this moment of, of grand entry. We are about to celebrate the 20th anniversary of of Governor Bill Clinton's entry into the 1992 campaign. He did that on October 1st, 1991, so still several months away. I grant you all of that, and I'm glad that you brought up uh, the uh, the campaign by then-governor of Arkansas, Bill Clinton. It's, uh, it tells a great story of what it was to campaign in that time, and there were so many innovations. You were personally involved uh, in that campaign in democratic politics as you've been for so long. But it's a great segue to one of the finest political reporters uh, in the country who's joining us today, Mark Halpern of Time Magazine. Mark Halpern, senior political editor of Time Magazine, contributor to MSNBC, just back from Iowa, a trip that began on August 9th, watched all the Republican candidates duel it out for supremacy in that state, uh, about to embark on a much-deserved vacation with so little sleep in the previous week. Thank you for making time to join us at Polyoptics before you head out. Delighted to be here with the two of you and uh, have an activity that will keep me awake. Uh, Mark, I, we I've known you since you were in the scrum in Iowa and New Hampshire uh, almost 20 years ago, 19 years ago. Um, we're going to celebrate the, uh, the 20th anniversary of Bill Clinton's announcement of his candidacy in October in Little Rock. How, for you, as a observer of of the political process, does what you felt like, what you felt in 1992 compared to what you saw in Iowa last week? At its heart, it's the same old thing. Uh, I view covering presidential politics as a way to understand where the country is every four years, what we're looking for in leadership, what our what our mood is like. Uh, so for me, it's the same thing: traveling around the country, getting out of uh, the east, off the east coast, big cities, and seeing what people in America are really thinking of. On the other hand, the, it, it's easy, it's, it's impossible to, to not see the changes, the way things are so different than they were. Uh, I had, a, I had a, you know, no BlackBerry, no wireless communication except for a, a, a mobile phone that was in a, in a, the size of a toaster um, that came in a little bag. And, and uh, that was 
that was the way everyone covered it, so we were all equal. But the, the technological changes, the proliferation of news organizations, the loss of influence of old media organs like ABC News, NBC News, the New York Times, um, and the, the access to candidates is so different than it was uh, when I first started covering presidential politics in 1991. You probably had a lot of time with Bill Clinton, Bruce Lindsay, and the people that were on his campaign back then. Remind us what it was like to cover a nascent candidate 20 years ago. Well, covering Bill Clinton was uh, the most interesting experience I've had in my career. Uh, He was incredibly accessible to us. There were were evenings... uh, where he, we would we talked to him all day on the ground and on the, the charter plane, and uh, he'd come back to talk to us at the end of the day, and there would be times, I confess, when we pretended to be asleep because we had enough of talking with him and we needed a little bit of a break. That's so different than today. <laughs> um, Josh, now there are candidates I cover who I've never met, uh, and, and I'm lucky enough to have a fair amount of access to most of the candidates, uh, and there are people who, who get assigned to the campaigns um, full-time for major news organizations who never meet the candidate. They could be there the entire campaign, and, and their interactions with them are, are superficial at best. Now, access is great for reporters to, to for various reasons, but it's good for the country because very few Americans will actually get to meet the candidates directly, even in places like Iowa and New Hampshire. And I think one of the biggest changes and most unfortunate is it's much more difficult for reporters like me to get to know the candidates well enough to give the country a sense of what they're like. So as you landed in Des Moines and spent time going between Des Moines and Ames and other places where the candidates were trying to introduce themselves to voters, did you feel a sense of disappointment that their months of effort, uh, in some cases years of effort, was being overshad- was about to be overshadowed but by what would happen in South Carolina and Governor Perry's introduction to the race? Well, I, I confess, Josh, I was tempted to get on a plane and go to South Carolina since there's, that was at least as big a story. And and I thought it might be with fewer reporters to have to have to contend with. Um, you know, presidential politics ain't beanbag, and it also, at the same time, the rules are pretty clear. Uh, you, if you can find a way to get earned media and to create excitement and buzz within your party, you're going to see the, that virtuous cycle of more media coverage, higher poll numbers, more fundraising, more media coverage, higher poll numbers, more fundraising. And so the rules, as I say, are clear. And, and uh, you know, Sarah Palin went to the fair. She, she wasn't in the straw poll. That created a stir. But as, as, as long as you are able to compete under the, the informal rules of, of what gets attention and what doesn't, I think it's, it's, all, it's all good. And, and uh, luckily, in the age of Twitter, I can follow what Rick Perry's saying in real time with my colleagues there if I find the right people to follow. Um, and that's very different than 1992, where I had to rely on faxes of newspaper stories every morning, hopefully that would arrive on their crinkly paper before I had to make the first bag call. We were just talking about crinkly paper last week, and what was David Yepsen saying in Des Moines? The only way you could find out about it was the hotline that's, if you weren't there. That's right. Um, if you... Thinking about the particular dynamics of this cycle, if you're in Austin, Texas, advising Governor Perry about when and whether to get in the race, is there a single better day to have done it than Saturday afternoon last? Well, you know, he did take a little bit of heat by for some some political elites in Iowa for, you know, dissing and in some way stepping on the straw poll. So 
it may not have been a perfect choice. I think it was it was driven at least in part, not just wanting to maybe step on the message there a little bit and just take some of the spotlight away from from Ames, but also because he was running out of time. Uh, he has a very difficult task of both simultaneously raising money and introducing himself to voters nationally and in the key early voting states. So. I think I think it was driven by once he made the decision to run to get in to be able to start campaigning and raising money. Um, you know, in Texas they do things their own way, and and Rick Perry uh, is is gonna is already just in a short time in the race is already blotting out the exposure of some of the other candidates. Michelle Bachman won the straw poll, and although she got credit for that first woman to win the Republican straw poll there, that's an achievement. Uh, she's really been overshadowed in the in the amount of press coverage and the nature of the press coverage by Perry. Mark, one of the things that uh, I imagine when you're out there on the trail, you know, gathering string for another book, uh, publishing, you know, must-read elements on the page uh, at time, is that you're like the food critic who shows up and everybody looks around and says, oh, God, he's here. Uh, You know, this has got to be right. There are so many people following uh, folks around in the Republican primaries uh, fight right now just trying to, to get the nomination. Do, do you find that uh, people are keying off your reporting in, in a way? Uh, you, you've paid a lot of attention to the visual communication, a lot of the pictures and the elements that really tell us a lot about a full-fledged campaign. Uh, are people taking their lead from you out there on the road and uh, paying attention to what you're paying attention to? Adam, if they are, God save the republic. God save the republic. Um, uh, I mean, I, maybe some people, but I'm certainly taking cues from from smart reporters who I know. Um, you know, Dan Balts, The Washington Post in particular for me is just uh, my my Yoda. Uh, and and there's plenty of other of my colleagues out there who I look to. So maybe it'd be flattering if some people were looking to my coverage. But, I, you know, I've, I'm able to in the role I have now, unlike in 1992, where I was with Bill Clinton for, you know, 340 of 365 days. I'm able to float around and cover different candidates. There's a real upside to that to be able to compare people side to side. On the other hand, it's difficult to parachute into a campaign, listen to a stump speech for a day or two, and then figure out what's new and what isn't, what's evolved and what hasn't. Um, And so in that sense, I think probably people look less to me than they might because I'm not able to bring that day-to-day institutional memory that's so important. And the, the people who are the beat reporters, there aren't very many at this point, there'll be more. Those people are really valuable. Those people can tell you, all right, now they're emphasizing this, now they're de-emphasizing that in a way that's really, in some ways, the, the heart of following the arc of a candidacy. Let's talk about organization. Uh, clearly, there's a great deal of continuity. I mean, there's change, to be sure. But in the ranks of the journalists that are covering uh, what's going on out in the, on the hustings, but you're so familiar after having uh, been covering all of this for so long with the professional staffers, the advanced folks, and and now the introduction of uh, campaigning, even though Palin's not in the race, she doesn't travel anywhere without uh, a photographer and a videographer, and they're they're cranking out material on a weekly basis. Are you seeing uh, some of the campaigns that are just head and, and, and shoulders above others with regard to organization and how they're utilizing digital and, and new media? And if so, tell us who they are. Well, Adam, you know, I think this cycle, things are a little bit more equal because equipment's more widely available. Uh, you've got a, a cycle, under, everyone has a cycle under their belt. There's more people uh, uh, who, are, who, are, who understand how to use new media pretty effectively. I've been very impressed with the quality of the work done uh, online videos by the Romney campaign. Uh, Rick Perry's first video I thought was outstanding. Uh, some of John Huntsman's videos have been very good. Some of Tim Pawlenty's videos, although 
Many people said they weren't right. quite right for him. So did you like? You say you liked uh, some of Huntsman stuff. So you thought that uh, the introduction campaign that Fred Davis put together was worthwhile? Is that what you're talking about, or some other stuff? I, I was, although they've done other videos. I was. I actually wasn't talking about the introduction ones. Okay. I think those were good because it got, from their point of view, got people talking. They've done the, the typical kind of day day in the life on the campaign trail videos. Uh, with music, typically, that I think have been pretty effective in bringing the flavor of not just John Huntsman, but his family uh, to a wider audience than people who'd see them in person. The candidate hasn't really matched the production, though, has he? No, John Huntsman has been, to many of his supporters and, and to me, a disappointment right. in terms of how he'd performed. I went and saw him uh, right when he got in the race in New Hampshire. I was blown away by right. his skills. I still think what I saw was real. If, if this If this were decided solely in living rooms, I think he'd be as strong a candidate as there is out there. I may have underestimated, as many Republicans told me I was, uh, how much being uh, Barack Obama's ambassador to China would hurt him with some with a lot of Republicans. And he's failed to drive a message. I think there's two things that Republicans want uh, from a candidate above above all else. They want someone who, as Dave Carney, who's the top political advisor to to Governor Perry, says they want someone who will take the wood to Barack Obama, and they want someone with a compelling message about how to create jobs. John Huntsman has not done either of those. I saw him in Florida. Uh, give uh, early on in his campaign, uh, give uh, a number of uh, speeches to different audiences, mostly Republican partisan audiences, often would not mention the president, or if he did, it was in passing. That that may be uh, his style, that may be what he's comfortable doing, Josh, but it is not the mood of the Republican Party right now. We were doing a show with uh, your uh, occasional writing partner, John Heilman, that a couple days after you had gone to New Hampshire, and we got your reports through John of what he was doing up in the North Country, and it all sounded quite positive. And to me, uh, a uh, person who's worked in Democratic administrations, the thought that a Republican governor would serve as ambassador to China and come back and run as a uh, moderate Republican seemed perfectly acceptable, but that's me. I'm a Democrat. Um, But it seemed to me that when Uh, He did his announcement at Liberty State Park with the backdrop of the Statue of Liberty uh, echoing in many ways Ronald Reagan's post-convention announcement. Uh, And then there were typical advanced snafus following that announcement. The press bus was taken to a plane en route Riyadh uh, instead of Berlin uh, or wherever he was going in, in New Hampshire. But it seemed like the press was sort of merciless in reporting factoids like his credentials were misspelled. I mean, did that seem, and it it does seem like the media tries to eat the young of new candidates. And we're seeing even Rick Perry, 48 hours after his announcement, a little blowback. Shouldn't we give people a little more latitude to get their campaigns going? I think so. And I've, throughout my career, been, I think, a little bit more forgiving than some of my colleagues of, you know, I mean, the thing about the the press bus briefly went to the wrong plane, but uh, some of the news accounts would have led you to believe that the reporters were halfway to Riyadh before the plane had to turn back around. <laughs> um, I, I, I think, you know, there is, there is a correlation in, in, in reporters' minds, and I think a, a, a justifiable one, that says if you can't run a campaign, how can you run the country? At the same time, uh, as you said, particularly in the beginning, you know, m- mistakes get made. News organizations, believe it or not, make mistakes too. So I'm not, I'm not a driver of that culture. Uh, uh, you know, now you brought mentioned Governor Perry. I think Governor Perry refusing to say whether the president loves his country is not something that I can overlook. The way uh, bring the press to the wrong plane is. I think that's something not that a does rookie bear. mistake. That's a, it is well, it's a rookie mistake, but it's one that bears explanation, and I think he needs to explain it. Now he chose not to back off that. Let's see if he repeats rhetoric like that. But I think that that this is the major leagues, and early on, 
you know, the backdrop of the Statue of Liberty, yeah, you probably have discussed here, um, widely dis- widely noted, uh, you know, the way the, the camera platform was set up, they didn't actually get the Statue of Liberty in the shot, uh, the head-on shot of, of Huntsman speaking, and that would seem to undermine the, the, uh, the rationale for doing the event where they did it. Again, major leagues, you got to be ready from day one. And, and partly what you're seeing in the case of those two campaigns, you know, one of some of the most unorthodox uh, presidential campaigns we've seen in the case of John Huntsman, he was in China for two years. Uh, they planned the campaign in his absence, they claim, with no communication, hoping he would run. And he was out there running uh, several weeks after he got back from China, having never been a national candidate before. In the case of Rick Perry, by modern standards, uh, this is a, a late entry. As you pointed out, Bill Clinton got in later, but 1992 is a century ago. Uh, people yeah. run usually now for four years at least. And so Rick Perry's late entrance, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised there's some hiccups, both from the candidates' part and in terms of the staff. You're listening to uh, Mark Halpern from Time Magazine here on Polyoptics, Sirius XM 124, the POTUS channel. Mark, uh, when we talk about Governor Perry getting into this race, uh, late by most traditional standards to be sure and, and a steep climb for fundraising. He also, and you've alluded to this, uh, while he might have been cut a little bit more slack by you than some of your, your colleagues, did get a little tit-for-tat going with the President of the United States, which is never a bad thing. Let's have a listen and deconstruct this. Oh, the, uh, the Federal Reserve. Um, I'll take a pass on, on the Federal Reserve right at the moment be real honest with you. The, um, I know there's a lot of talk and, and what have you uh, about them. Uh, if, if this guy prints more money um, between now and the election, I don't know what y'all would do to him in Iowa, but we'd, we would treat him pretty ugly down in Texas. I mean, printing more money to play politics at this particular time in American history is almost treacherous, or treasonous, in my opinion. You know, I'm, uh, Mr. Perry just got in the presidential race, and uh, I think that everybody who runs for president, uh, it probably takes them a little bit of time before they start realizing that uh, this isn't like running for governor, or running for senator, or running for Congress. Uh, and you've got to be a little more careful about what you say. Uh, but uh, I'll, I'll cut him some slack. He's, he's uh, only been at it uh, for a few days now. Mark, uh, the President of the United States is cutting the governor of Texas a little slack, and it's not bad to have him say your name when you're on the trail for just a couple days. You know, Adam, I'll tell you another way. I'm I'm somewhat a little different than at least some of my colleagues, which is I don't always look for the political motives of politicians. I think sometimes candidates and presidents do what they think is right or react in a human way. And and that's what I think the president was doing there. Some of my colleagues have looked at what he said and said, this proves that they want to run against Perry rather than Romney because he was so soft on Perry, he wants to not hurt his candidacy. I think that that the the um, the president was reacting in a human way. He remembers when he was a first-time candidate. It's one of the most under-remembered and appreciated stories of the 2008 race, which is after his announcement speech in Springfield that was so brilliantly executed and staged and, and delivered, uh, the president was a pretty bad candidate for the most of two. I wouldn't have accepted so, that answer from anybody else but you, but now you've got me <laughs> thinking about it. He was he was a bad candidate, and, and so he appreciates that sometimes you start out rocky, even if you've got a lot of potential. At the same time, uh, Rick Perry proved that he could he could put his name front and center. There was no doubt that that Wolf Blitzer, who who conducted that interview with the president out on the road, was going to ask about Perry because Perry 
Perry, through his actions, whether intentional or not, got himself front and center in a way that Michelle Bachman and, and, and Mitt Romney were not able to do in that news cycle. Mark, to inoculate himself from some of the criticism that he has received over the past few days for having a bus tour through Wisconsin, Iowa, and Illinois, right in the heart of the Republican political season, and paying for it all with federal dollars. Should the Obama campaign have opened up its checkbook and ponied up the minimum that would have made this a political trip? You know, Josh, I've always been pretty elastic in my view of what White Houses can do that's political. It's always been that way in, in my career and in the modern era. Karl Rove in, in 1999 was very careful to not criticize either the Clinton White House right. or the or Vice President Gore's campaign for using government resources because he knew that's the way it had always right. had been done. And, and, and he knew that if they won, he wanted to be able to use that in the in the Bush administration. You know, you've got a, a political people working in the White House. It, it's, it's impossible to imagine separating them completely. That having been said, I thought this trip was as close to over the line as I've ever seen, which is to say they chose to go only to battleground states. Illinois is a slight exception to that. But to go to Minnesota and Iowa, to go right after the straw poll when it's clear that part of the president's reelection strategy is to not let the Republicans dominate the dialogue in any state that could be important in the general election, which Iowa will be in all likelihood. And what he was doing was something that presidents do, but candidates do more. And so I, I'm not calling for the campaign to pay for it. I don't think the campaign should. But I do think that, that based on its, uh, its style and intent, this was as close to a pure political trip as I've seen a president take. Josh and I have had this discussion, uh, Mark, and, uh, and I, I agree with you. Uh, one of the things that, that I really th disappointed me uh, is that the, the White House is getting a little bit more savvy about matching the image with the message. Um, you know, they talk about winning the future, and uh, they held, although they did do, you know, some events outside with the John Deere tractor and the, in the hay bales, um, they also did a, uh, a rural economic summit where if you're trying to get outside the Beltway and outside the White House to bring a 12 by 12 backdrop that says the White House all over and what feels like a campaign event anyway uh, did not necessarily feel effective to me where in other instances they they did okay yeah I thought you know there was a lot of focus as as you guys know on the bus uh, and the fact that there was a government paid for giant death star of a bus that was built in Canada um, I think that got as much or more attention as as the staging of the events I thought that the staging was decent uh, but I didn't see a single shot that took my breath away or branded the thing in a way that I, I think was their intent. They were they were fine and solid, but I thought I thought unremarkable. Yeah, uh, Mark, we're going to have as our next guest a very special uh, uh, old friend of mine and a guy you know well, Mort Engelberg, the father of the modern bus tour. And as I looked at that uh, million dollar plus bus, matte black, with uh, with its siren on it, I thought back to Mort and what the caravan looked like coming out of the 1992 Democratic Convention. Uh, Fifteen buses in a row, all similarly branded on the road to change America. And it almost flies in the face of calling something a bus tour if what you're being uh, conveyed in is basically just an enormous limousine, isn't it? Well, look, the president is the president, and he's got a level of security around him that Bill Clinton didn't have, even with Secret Service protection in 1992. Um, and I think, I think... Again, while people can make jokes about the bus and criticize it, 
we want our presidents to be secure. We, if, if presidents and, and, and that that bus, I'm told, is not just for the president, Josh, but yeah. for anybody who wants who, who's entitled to it and, and perhaps a candidate uh, during sure, the general election. Well, I'm so, glad you brought that up, Mark, because that 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 was the storyline that was coming out. This idea that, you know, in true government fashion, buy why, why buy one when you can buy two for twice the price? And they're going to try and thrust this on the Republican nominee. Well, if the Republican nominee wants it, and they may well, I think I think uh, the president's entitled to security. I'm sure the Secret Service recommended it. I don't think Barack Obama ordered it up himself, and uh, and so I mean I'm sure he didn't. So it is what it is. Uh, it certainly does, Josh. I think you, you, if I understood the, the gist of your question, it certainly does detract from the notion that the president's out with the people. Because so much of the imagery of the 1992 bus tours, in particular, 1996 being a bit of a of a, uh, a double take, uh, it was somewhat of the Clintons and the Gores on the stumps getting to know e- on the stump getting to know each other. But as you were a as you're packaging a story as uh, for ABC News World News Tonight with Peter Jennings, uh, it was as much about the shots of the uh, countryside going past and the buses rolling over the highway, and so. Uh, as much as of substance of what what was said at the microphone was matched by the imagery going through these battleground states, and they lost. And if you are going to use this conveyance, you're going to lose that as a feature of that st- those stories. You, you and I have to constantly uh, check the uh, the influence of our 1992 nostalgia has over our ability to judge. That's true. But I will say I cannot think of anything in my career from 1992 forward that matches the pictures and the energy of those of those bus tours that the Clintons and Gores took. The 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 pictures, both planned and spontaneous, yeah. were just spectacular. Mort Engelberg was a genius at being both careful in planning but also improvising. Right. And when 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 something occurred that that was that could be done spontaneously, it happened. There was again, even with Secret Service there, there was much more access and 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 commingling between the campaign and the campaign staff and the candidates and the press uh, than 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 there is today. And that that's going to produce more pictures. And frankly, you know, reporters are human. Uh, even if you weren't cheering for Bill Clinton to win the election, if you were a reporter on the trip, you were you knew you were in an exciting place that that was going to produce. If you were in television, in particular, fantastic copy. Speaking of exciting places, uh, as Adam and I were doing our shows earlier this spring, and it looked like a Republican field was yet to form, uh, and we were wondering as we talked to John Heileman, are you going to have as much material for a game change too as you had for game change? It certainly feels like uh, there'll be stuff to write about this cycle, and as you get ready to to take a, a few days off and recharge the batteries for the fall. How are you feeling about the process of working with John and, and, and the way the next book will actually turn out? Feeling great about it. Um, have had great cooperation already on the book. And, uh, you know, we were a little disappointed when we lost Haley Barber, who decided not to run. He's a great candidate and a great character. Great character. Uh, but, but we've got a, a, a Michelle Bachman candidacy that's stronger than a lot of people thought it would be. Uh, and, uh, and now Rick Perry. Uh, who's a great character, and maybe Sarah Palin. So, in terms of, in terms of, you know, in any narrative, the thing you want most of all is, is good characters, uh, whether fiction or nonfiction. We've got our good characters. Uh, there were people who, when we when we signed the deal to write a second book, said, "You're going to have Republican candidates that are boring. It's going to be Romney versus Pawlenty." Well, that's not happening. And they said, "Well, and whoever the Republicans are, there's no way they're going to be able to beat the president. He's just too strong. They'll be able to win. The economy will improve." 
it looks like the economy is going to be, unfortunately, in a bad place. Uh, but for the, from the point of view of a competitive election, I, I think we're going to have one. And th- th- there's a big difference for Barack Obama in his own mind between being a one-term president and a two-term president. If he's a one-term president, he's an accident of history who is just in the right place at the right time. He's a very competitive guy. He does not want to lose. He will go all out, but he may still lose. Mark, it takes a, an innovator to, to cover a race like this, and through development of the note for ABC News uh, and the page for Time Magazine and your the, game ch- the first game change and what will surely be the second game change, uh, no one covers a political race like Mark Halperin. So thank you so much for joining us at Polyoptics. Gentlemen, my pleasure. Really nice to have me on. Josh, the, the bus tour is an in- integral part of the presidential campaign. And while it's come under scrutiny, as Mark Halpern has alluded uh, of late with President Obama's black uh, SUV-type bus that's rolling around the uh, the roads of Iowa, you've had a lot of history yourself in putting this kind of stuff on. In fact, you were really involved with the master, the guy who originated all of this, uh, back in the Clinton-Gore days. That's right, Adam. And, and Mark uh, talked about him a little bit. His name is Mort Engelberg. And if you look at his filmography on IMDb, uh, there, are, there are titles like Pass the Ammo, Ruskies, Made to Order, Three for the Road, The Big Easy, and his coup de gras, Smokey and the Bandit. Universal presents Burt Reynolds, Sally Field, Jerry Reed, and Fred. Josh, that's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's a guaranteed winner on any weekend on cable, but the man behind this film is the guy who decided... I'm going to remake retail politics and put a bus tour together for a presidential candidate? That's Mort Engelberg, and he joins us on Polyoptics today. Hello, Mort. How are you? Hi, guys. Good afternoon or good morning. Uh, I wonder if those those sounds bring you back and and if you had to compare Jackie Gleason to any politician you've met over so many years of doing this, Mort, uh, where does Jackie rate? Right at the top. Mort, I'm I'm a huge fan and so glad to be talking to you on Polyoptics today. I want to get right down to brass tacks. Uh, I know that, George, uh, that, uh, that Josh had a chance to learn from you at, at an early age in his political career, but how did you conceive of and then execute against the, the uh, sort of iconic bus tour of the Clinton and Gore campaign in 1992? Well, let me say, guys, that, you know, first of all, I was a volunteer, have been a volunteer, and will always be a volunteer. Uh, I had done... Thanks to of, royalties from Smokey and the Bandit. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I'd done some volunteer work in 84 for Mondale, 88 for Dukakis, and I'd spent some time with the then-Governor Clinton prior to the convention in 92. And it, it just occurred to me, going into that two- or three-month period prior to the convention, that in my experience... Uh, Democratic politics after, and maybe perhaps Republican politics as well, that normally after the conventions, the uh, presidential candidate and the VP candidates did a series of airport fly-arounds, which was, you know, basically nothing but some white men on tarmacs. And, you know, the idea of the bus trip was twofold. One, uh, you know, to try to uh, get these guys into areas where no presidential candidate had ever been. But now let me bring up the cynical point. By that, I mean going into small towns, but we were very conscious when we laid the thing out to always be in big city markets, i.e., if we were in Erie, Pennsylvania, small town though it may be, 
perhaps no presidential candidate had ever been there, but we were still in uh, the Philadelphia media market. So anyway, that was the point. And uh, I've told Josh this story many times that on the first bus trip, we had uh, five buses, uh, one for each of the uh, the candidates vote, one for Governor Clinton, one for Senator Gore and his staff, one for assorted campaign staff, and then two buses for press, which, you know, held maybe 45 or 50 people. And the only sure thing I knew was that we would have the press pool ahead of us when we left New York, and we would have film of the bus on the New Jersey Turnpike, the buses on the New Jersey Turnpike, with the New York City skyline in the background. And the only thing I really could guarantee was that I felt that we would lead the network news that night with that picture. Well, of course, what happened was that the press pool got stuck in traffic ahead of us. They never got the picture, and by the time we reached the first, <laughs> uh, uh, what do you call it, toll booth on the uh, New Jersey Turnpike, the police in the car ahead of me called back to say that there was a stowaway on the press, on the staff bus. So immediately we had to stop the Secret Service, remove the, uh, this homeless person who had been camping out on the bus, <laughs> and off we went. Uh, and again, other than that, uh, it was the kind of thing that, A, very, very few people other than Mickey Cantor and ultimately the then-governor approved of. And it it just, you know, nobody knew what was going to happen. Uh, ultimately, the bottom line after eight days, and again, let me back up and add that uh, I laid the uh, trip out with a fellow named uh, now-departed Bruce Garamella, who had been a advanced person for about 100 years. And uh, no one in Little Rock seemed to be paying any attention. The focus during that period was on both the campaign, on the convention and on who the VP candidate was going to be. And it wasn't until literally the third day of the convention that people realized that we now had eight days of a bus trip to somehow fill up. So... You know, advance teams were sent out. The stops were well organized. But uh, other than that, it was, you know, kind of a reluctance on the part of many of the grown-ups. And I won't quote one of the people who said that he thought it was the stupidest idea he'd ever heard. And his only concern was that we'd be in Wheeling, West Virginia, that Sunday for a satellite church broadcast. And I should add also that that person and one of his cohorts were the lead in the Time story the following week, where we had eight pages of both Time and Newsweek, but these guys were both quoted as talking about the origin of the bus trip, of one of them looking at a road atlas and the other suggesting a bus trip, and that was the well, origin. Not, not so, only was it a great idea, it was my idea. It was everybody's <laughs> idea. Well, and, one person who had faith in you back then, uh, Mort, uh, is the same person who you do a lot of work with still today, then Governor, now former President Clinton. But let's hear from Governor Clinton about what he thought he was about to encounter as those buses were getting ready to roll out of Manhattan. We're going to get on these buses in a minute and we're going to New Jersey and Pennsylvania and Indiana and Kentucky and Ohio and Illinois and Missouri and before we're through we're going to go back to the heartland of America and into the hearts of America. We're going to take the people who were for parole, the people who are Democrats, the people who are Republicans, the people who had given up and dropped out and build a coalition to reclaim our country's heritage. Thank you and God bless you all. That's right. That's right. Bring back some memories, huh, Mort? Well, indeed it does. And I'm, Josh, I may have told you this story. I 
went up to the uh, hotel suite to brief both the Clintons and the Gores on what was in store for them, at least for that first day. And uh, then Senator Gore really didn't think it was such a good idea, and he had decided he was only going to stay on the bus for a couple of days. And in the That's elevator, why he never became down, president of the United States. I'm sorry? That's why he never became president of the United States. Well, I don't know about that. But anyway, uh, in the elevator riding down, the governor sort of whispered to me if I thought it was a good idea. <laughs> and the only response I could make was that we'd already rented the buses, and I guess we had to do it. <laughs> that money had been spent, Governor. Uh, but I have to tell you, Mort, uh, the energy and the natural instinct that Bill Clinton brought to that tour, to the launch of it that we just heard, uh, is the kind of thing that the, the showmanship, the ability to be a part of the stagecraft that had been created around him. And when we take a look at what we're seeing today, uh, this week we've seen the Secret Service roll out their black, uh, they call it Land Force One, I think some people are calling it, but it's a, it's a big sort of antithesis of the bus tour. It's very anti-mort. There's no messaging, there's no plastic wrap, there's no great imagery or picture to be made, and yet this is the way uh, the president is, uh, is bus touring around the country. What do you think of that? Well, uh, again, I, I'm, I'm sort of, I, I've gotten to the point where, let me back up and give you an anecdote, okay? A friend of mine ran for the school board uh, about a year ago here in Los Angeles, not what you'd call a huge job. He had a bus tour in his little, uh, yeah. you know, state district, school board district, so that, you know, it, it's now sort of everybody in the world does a bus tour, and it's like... Uh, you know, there's something pro forma that you need to do a bus tour if you're running for public office. You know, in terms of the, um, you know, the Obama situation with his bus, I can understand the Secret Service's concern, you know, regarding security. I understand the fact that they need the communications. And, you know, I think that if candidates are going to want to ride around on buses, that's the way it's going to be. I saw a story this morning that said there was a second bus being built that would be used by whoever the Republican nominee was, if and when he or she decided to do a bus trip. But, Mort, so much of what your bus tours, our bus tours, the 1996 uh, uh, train trip that we orchestrated from West Virginia out to Illinois to the Democratic uh, National Convention, your riverboat trip after the 2000 convention for Vice President Gore and Senator Joe Lieberman had to do with branding. You never let an opportunity go by to allow buses to roll across the heartland without whatever we decided was going to be the uh, the catchphrase or the message of our campaign, whether it was on the road to change America, uh, building a bridge to the 21st century, uh, etc. So what we what I have seen this week is sort of a a missed opportunity the way you used to uh, dispatch uh, jump teams ahead of the buses purely for the effect of watching those buses roll across the heartland, whether or not the candidate was in the picture or not. Yeah, true, true. But, uh, you know, Josh, as you well know, having done this for a long, long time, you know, the idea is you want all of this to appear natural. And those so-called jump teams we had, we really started that with the second bus trip. Uh, and, you know, my message to the guys or the people doing those things were if I saw them, they were going to be fired. The idea being that, you know, we didn't want the press to know that we had people out ahead of us 
building up spontaneous crowds and demonstrations. So I, lo- I love it uh, because uh, there's nothing like building up a spontaneous crowd. And I say that from the perspective of having been uh, a stagecraft director uh, for President of the United States myself, Mort. But, you know, it seems like what you really led on, as Josh was alluding, was the attention that needs to be paid to visual communications, that message uh, needs to be supported by image, that uh, the picture that you described of, of, of what you wanted to see with the New York skyline behind the bus is the kind of thing that people now, not so much pro forma, but those who are most skilled and advanced teams who are out there who've seen Josh's work, who've seen my work and others, uh, are trying to emulate. And yet this White House seems to resist it. They, in some ways, are always putting up an American flag, or there's a blue drape and a couple of flags. Do you have a sense that this White House is uh, effective in the visual communications realm, or would you like to see them see see them do something different well again first of all i don't know uh, a lot of this and josh again can confirm this you know is going to be dictated by secret service security issues whatever uh i you know did some uh advanced stuff for senator clinton um in you know during the pre you know the campaign in 08 uh and it was my opinion i spent most of my time with president clinton doing events for her but the television that I saw constantly on both, or per, per, particularly on Senator Clinton, was always the same shot, an American flag in the background, period. Uh, I, you know, the Obama people, I think, were a bit better during the campaign. But again, I don't know what those issues are now that they're dealing with in terms of Secret Service. I mean, for example, I saw footage last night of him in Iowa and, you know, there was a red barn behind him that, you know, wasn't so terrific, but I suspect that barn was there because the Secret Service, you know, wanted him, you know, against a barn. See, I'll take you, I'll take you uh, on that issue and say no. No, I don't think so. Um, I've, I've been working with the service for the last, you know, few years when we were finishing up the White House. I don't think that the service is going to, they'll, they'll say what they can't do. They won't dictate what you must do. Um, they'll bring resources to bear against what you're going to do. Um, there's certainly plate armor in front of those podiums, and, you know, they're not doing such a great job of dressing them. But I will grant you that that, uh, that red farmhouse was probably just crossed the line, Josh, into being okay. But as Mark Halpern said to us uh, from Time Magazine earlier in this show, Mort, he didn't see anything that really took his breath away or, or so far that he thought was uh, that seminal moment on the trail uh, that that people will will hang on to in their memories. Well, you know, I agree with you. I mean, I uh, don't want to attack or knock the people, you know, doing the Obama stuff. But you know, in my humble and un- very unprofessional opinion about politics, it seems to me that for the last six, five, six months, I don't I don't think picture really matters in terms of Obama. I think it's really message that people are looking for. I don't think that. You know, the greatest pictures in the world are going to do anything in terms of, you know, increasing his numbers or, you know, making him more electable as a candidate, I think. Well, that- yeah, I, I think that's right, Mort. But I think it's also, and Adam and I have talked about this a lot on, on earlier shows, which is uh, I almost think that they've they've punted on this or they've decided to put it aside. And that may be a factor of the way the media is today, 
that if you try too hard, it will backfire on you. But I remember in 1994, you and I did a uh, site survey and a pre-advance and then a pre and then an advance in Prague, the Czech Republic, uh, where we wanted to make a statement about this new president's entree to Europe, and we orchestrated a walk for President Clinton, uh, then President Havel of the Czech Republic, across the Charles Bridge. And that very morning, we found the uh, an old graveyard where uh, where Madeleine Albright's uh, relatives were buried, and that turned out to be the front page of the New York Times the next day, President Clinton walking through this graveyard. It was a stirring picture, and it happened because you saw the graveyard on the on the pre-advance and said, all you have to do is send him for a walk with a, a local guide, and it's going to make the cover of the New York Times. And I'm just not sure you can command that kind of coverage anymore, right, Mark? You know, I... I... I just don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, go back to the campaign. You know, I saw spectacular stuff of uh, the then candidate Obama in Berlin. I mean, uh, you know, Josh, it would have been hard to top the stuff they did at the, um, you know, that Russian war memorial. You know, with the hundred thousand people, whatever they had. The uh, uh, just to jump in more, and I was thinking about what Josh just said about your uh, prescience and. Uh, finding some of these locations on that pre-advance. Um, I, I spent some time in Prague uh, some years later and remember being advised that this was the bridge that President Clinton and Vaclav Havel uh, had, had crossed. I mean, these were moments in history beyond just the, 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 the imagery at the time that were created and so thoughtfully done. Um, my sense is that, uh, well, I could appreciate not wanting to knock the uh, the Obama folks. There is some energy, Josh, that seems to have waned and is not there on the trail right now for the president. And I know they're going to bring it back. I know they're going to get there. I think that they've taken enough flack that they're going to have to wrap this bus or find some other visual elements and bring their A game. And I just don't feel like we've been seeing it this week. Yeah. I. Uh, you know, I think I actually... Uh, in the course of the conversation with Mark and with Mort, uh, I have looked closely at the pictures uh, of Obama's visits to places like Cannon Falls, Minnesota, Decorah, Iowa, Piasta, Iowa, Atkinson, Illinois, Alpha, Illinois, and I actually think they are as good uh, single still pictures as have been created by the Obama White House since they took over in January 2009. It it doesn't it doesn't need more than the right lighting, as Mort will attest to, the right time of day, a piece of properly placed bunting, some hay, and a barn house, and uh, and they got that right in this instance. Um, and so, I, going back to the, our, the beginning of our conversation with Mort, it all so much of it depends on. Um, location scouting. And we began our conversation with Mort listening to uh, a clip from Smoking the Bandit, which came out from Universal Pictures in 1977. But really what that was, Mort, and I'm curious about your thoughts about how the process of location scouting for that film led you into the love of politics and doing this for sort of more altruistic motive, how how picking the right spot makes all the difference. You know, I, I, it's, that's a tough question, Josh. I mean, first of all, let me just basically go back to bus trip number one in 1992. And Josh, you may disagree with me, but, you know, and I don't mean to sound modest, but that was the most extraordinary thing that ever happened. And I think none of us other than uh, then Governor Clinton and Senator Gore and some sort of magic surrounding the two of them 
made it work. I mean, it, it, if you had had unlimited resources and the greatest location scouting advanced people, you still couldn't have equaled it. I mean, there was some magic there that occurred, you know, and it was, in my opinion, due to the, you know, the magic of these two guys. Uh, again, in going, you know, likening the movies to, um, you know, the politics stuff, it's, you know, as James Carville once said, you know, politics is show business for ugly people, and there's really not a lot of difference. I think that... Uh, Truer words <laughs> have not been spoken. No, but I'm just saying, I think that when you're looking, you know, for a site or a spot to do an event, uh, you know, the, it's the same as in movies. I mean, Josh was with me when we did the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin, and, uh, you know, a pretty good set of pictures. And, you know, I don't think it was brain surgery. I think, you know, and as, you know, the locations or what have you in the Smokey and the Bandit pictures were any kind of brain surgery. Well, Mort, you have spent uh, uh, the better part of the last 10 years since uh, President Clinton left office continuing to work with the former president uh, when he needs some help on a volunteer basis uh, around the country and around the world. Um, curious about uh, the interesting things you've seen during that period, and also uh, if you decide to go back across the other side uh, into filmmaking, whether we will ever see a Smokey and the Bandit 4. Well, again, back, backing from that play, yes, there is apparently an, an, an interest at the current universal regime in a fourth smoke in the band. Are we breaking uh, news here? Can we can we report <laughs> no, that no, you're no, getting back on board? There's, well, I mean, I'll get back on board if it happens. Just so you guys know, uh, there was action and meetings and discussions about the fourth picture prior to the time General Electric sold Universal to Comcast. Now... A lot of those people are gone. Some of the people are there. So, you know, the process begins again. I, uh, you know, they make it or they don't make it. It's, you know, life will go on. Uh, well, I will, I will uh, enjoin the entire Polyoptics Nation who's listening to us more here on uh, the POTUS channel on Sirius XM 124 to go to the Polyoptics uh, page on Facebook and join this cause, this call to action to bring Mort back to the big screen and to put Smokey and the Bear, Bandit 4 uh, in theaters before too long. It would be terrific if somehow you could also bring back Jackie Gleason. Because uh, <laughs> I think that... Uh, Not even Joshua King can do that. Well, no, I mean, but, the, you know, the any success the picture enjoyed was due to Jackie Gleason. As you think about casting for Smokey 4, though, I know that you were uh, hovering around Thailand when there was rumor that former President Clinton was going to do a cameo on the, on the second... Uh, um, what was the name of the movie, Mark? Uh, Hangover 2. Hangover 2. Uh, but I think you, you got in the, in the way of that and it never happened. But maybe we cast uh, President Clinton as Buford T. Justice. <laughs> <laughs> Not a bad idea, Josh. Not a bad idea. Mort, thank you so much for taking your time to join us on this broadcast today. My pleasure, guys. Well, you know, Adam, I can listen to Mort Engelberg tell stories all day long. Anytime I fly to Los Angeles, I always make time to... Uh, drive a rental car up to the Hollywood Hills and pay a visit to Mort. His house is covered with, uh, with posters of the countries that he's visited, the campaigns that he's worked on, the, the branding that he's brought to bear on the political process, and also the movies that he's produced uh, in, in a classic old-school Hollywood career. And uh, when they made Mort Engelberg, uh, they broke the mold, and they'll never make another one like him. And it's why I think 
former President Bill Clinton enjoys still having Mort do his trips all around the world. Mort Engelberg was polyoptics before polyoptics was cool. That's right. Uh, yeah, no, a, a great show today, and I'm, I'm completely serious. You're listening to us on SiriusXM 124, the POTUS channel, and you need to get onto your Facebook. You need to hit POTUS with the dots. You can always find a link to uh, us here at Polyoptics on Facebook as well, and at polyoptics.com. We want to hear from you. Do we need to get Mort back out there? Want to be more fun and more visual if he was there, Josh? Well, certainly it would, and and, I, and it would be a great start if we could get uh, Universal Pictures to to get off the stick and uh, and bring us bring back to the multiplex Smokey and the Bandit Part Four. All right, thanks for joining us uh, on SiriusXM Polyoptics, Josh. You and I are due to get out there and be a part of uh, the history-making 2012 campaign. We need to get that settled and share that with our audience. We do. So many debates coming up, Adam. Uh, the, the, the field is going to start to get winnowed again. Uh, and then before you know it, it'll be the New Hampshire primary. All right, gut check. Is Palin going to get in or not? What do you think at this moment? End of the show. Well, I think it's to her benefit to keep us guessing as long as possible. At the end of the day, I, I don't think she gets in as a candidate. Uh, but a lot of people a lot smarter than me say that she will, and uh, we'll see. I, I happen to concur with you at this point. We'll keep our eye on it. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back with Polyoptics next week. Man.